carrying on in our series on perennials. So that's not on uh, gardening advice, that's on some key things that are always in season here at our church, um, key values of the church and of our community. So yeah, wow, what a privilege. Thank you, Dan and Amber, for, for allowing us to be part of that. And, you know, it was beautiful to witness um, August being dedicated like that. I think dedications are always um, moving for me. They're, um, they're moving because they remind me also of my, my journey and, you know, uh, and my journey on. So probably similar for all of us, the sense of um, the moment when we entered into the community of faith and our ongoing discovery of the life of God in the community of faith. And the words that, that Katie prayed, or that we all prayed at the end, was, was quite profound. i just read it again. It's, she says, May you find the presence of Christ your clothing and protection, and year by year may the knowledge of his presence be greater for you, that daily you may put on Christ and walk as his own in the world. I think that's a prayer we could all own today as well. Um, and that, oh, just by the way, we've got band practice downstairs, <laughs> in case you're wondering, that's not part of the service. Um, <clears throat> so we just we'll groove with them. Um, yeah, so this idea of participation, this idea of being clothed in Christ, was for Paul, uh, the Apostle Paul, was, was central, was, was the very definition of life itself. Paul, Paul said, um, to live is Christ. That was his view, to live is Christ. Or um, when he was speaking to the Athenian philosophers, he said, in him and in, in God, we live and move and have our being. Um, or when he was speaking to the Galatians, he says, um, the, the, I have been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So this idea of participation in the community of faith and participation in God is the good news of the gospel. And what August Rose experienced today and what she'll continue to experience in her lifetime, um, growing in deeper and richer ways of knowing God, um, that will primarily be happening in this context, which is the body of Christ. Teresa of Avila, reflecting on this idea of the body of Christ, um, wrote the following words. She writes, Christ has no body but yours, no hands, no feet on earth but yours. Yours are the eyes with which he looks, compassion on this world. Yours are the feet with which he walks to do good. Yours are the hands with which he blesses all the world. Yours are the hands, yours are the feet, yours are the eyes, you are his body. And so this morning, with the time that's remaining, um, <clears throat> I'm just going to share a few thoughts on, on this, I guess, on, on this idea of being the body of Christ, of, of our value for community. Now, community... That's how you spell it, I think. Um, community is one of those words which I think is really needs to be retired. Um, it's just it needs to be put uh, uh, away from the English language for maybe a hundred years because it's just so overdone and so overused. Um, it's almost lost all of its meaning. It's community is everywhere and nothing, you know. 
but it's just the most fuzzy word in the world. Um, community. Your, your bank talks about forming community with you. You know, it's like um, your, your teachers want community with you. Everybody wants community. It's like, ugh, no more. Um, but but anyway, it's a value. It's a value for us. Um, along with our, you know, like we've been going through, along with our desire to worship God with our whole being, along with our um, desire to hear and respond to God's word to us in Scripture, along with our desire to um, worship God through caring for the poor and advocating for justice. Here at Urban, we also value um, community. We, we value developing real and intimate relationships with one another, built on covenant love, mutual responsibility, and faithfulness, and fun, hopefully. But in a word, we value community. But for the sake of drawing on um, our Christian tradition and, and dodging dodging the um, fuzziness of that term community, I want to just talk more about fellowship, which is an old-fashioned word, but it's one hopefully that we can draw on as Christians. It gives us a little bit more specificity because fellowship links us back to the world of the early church. It's a translation of a Greek word, koinonia, which funnily enough can also be translated as participation. So community fellowship, participation are all in a sort of network of meaning. Um, and the, the New Testament seems to express this idea of fellowship primarily in these, in these two ways, as um, having a share and giving a share. So fellowship as having a share and giving a share. And the first and most prominent use of that word koinonia is around this idea of having a share. Um, so, for example, Peter, writing to some church leaders, said, I appeal to you as a fellow elder and fellow participant, or one, um, one in fellowship, in the glory to be revealed. So Peter appeals to these, to these church leaders as a fellow participant in the glory to be revealed. That's, that's how he understands his identity, as a, as a, um, a shareholder, <laughs> if you like. Um, and uh, similarly, Paul, in the second quote there, um, Paul reminded, I think himself, Paul's sitting in jail at this point writing to the Philippians, and he reminds himself and the Philippian Christians that whatever might happen to him while he's incarcerated, um, he's not alone because um, he's an active participant in God's grace alongside his fellow Christians. So whether he lives or whether he dies, whether he's let out or whether he stays in jail, he belongs to Christ, and that is an unbreakable bond which holds him together with the Philippians in this relationship of fellowship. Or again, Peter writes to his friends to remind them, um, that, that third quote there, uh, to remind them that God has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them we may participate in the divine nature or yeah, share fellowship. So this idea of fellowship is not just about how we feel about each other. It's not just warm fuzzies. It's actually um, a spiritual reality of being a Christian is that we are all participants in something that's bigger than ourselves. Um, we have a stake in it. We have a share in this thing, which is the very life of God. And the depth of this, yeah, the depth of this collective participation is what gave 
Paul and Peter and other apostles the license, uh, the authority to make these appeals to these communities because they were saying we belong to one another and therefore we can make these appeals to each other. So often the, the apostles begin their letters by reminding um, the believers of who they are based on their fellowship with Jesus Christ. So, um, <clears throat> so before going on to give instructions about how to live the Christian life, because we can sort of turn the Bible into a rule book, actually it always starts with who they are in Jesus Christ before going on to give them instructions on how to live. And I think that's intentional because it's like the apostles want to remind us that the primary place of our Christian identity and the key to um, this meaning of this word fellowship is found in this objective spiritual reality, this thing that, that's real, which we experience together. And that thing which we experience together is what makes us a Christian community. It's not how we feel about each other. It's not whether we vote the same, whether we dress the same. It's the fact that we all are participants in this spiritual reality. So having understood uh, this expression of fellowship, I think it's a bit easier to understand the second aspect, which is the giving a share. So having a share, we all have a share in, in God, in the life of God, and out of that having a share, we can then give a share. And that's where the outward signs of community begin to take shape and become, become visible. But it's like I said, it's important to remember that, that the indicative statements always come before the imperative statements. So the, the who we are always come before the what we have to do. And the, there's an important dynamic to that because the extent to which we can grasp who we are, the extent to which we can understand our lives being hidden in God will directly shape the extent to which we give a share. So I think this connects back to what Pete was sharing about actually last week, generously sharing our wealth with the poor. And as was pointed out, justice for the poor is not a sort of an optional aspect of the gospel message. Justice for the poor is the gospel. It's the heart of the gospel. Our poverty and God's justice. And that extends and ripples out to every part of our life. But until we are set free from a, a scarcity mindset, um, we will never experience that message as good news. It's like we'll experience it as someone wants my money or someone's after, you know, someone wants to take from me. Because we we will only experience it that way if we if we have the scarcity mentality, because we don't understand ourselves as being shareholders <laughs> in the life of God. When we understand ourselves as participants in the abundant riches of God, then our hearts are suddenly converted, our wallets are suddenly opened, and we share abundantly with each other, like it was in the early church, where it says all the believers were, were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. So this is a picture of Christian community at its best. The people understand who they are, and out of that understanding flows this abundant generosity towards each other. We wouldn't want to do it the other way around. We wouldn't want to 
kind of legislate generosity. That's never going to work. So some of us might have experienced Christian community like that. Some of us might have experienced Christian community at its best. Um, some of us may never have experienced Christian, Christian community like that. Uh, maybe we've seen glimpses of it, but not quite like that. And then some of us might have actually experienced the very worst of Christian community. So Christian community, we've, yeah, even within this room, there'll be a wide range of experiences of what Christian community can be like and can feel like. Um, but Christian community only goes well, only ever goes well, when it's treated as a byproduct rather than a goal. When Christian community becomes the goal, it becomes the unhealthy, the toxic kinds of communities. Christian community should always flow as a byproduct of the key goal, which is participation in the life of God. So to illustrate this point, um, I just want to share a little bit about uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. So probably familiar to some of you, maybe not to others, but um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was someone, I think, who experienced the very best and the very worst of Christian community um, in his relatively short life. So he was born in Berlin in, in 1906, and he grew up in a fairly well-to-do family um, and disappointed his family and his parents by becoming a pastor. Uh, and at the time when he was training for ordination, Germany had become, um, well, it, it, had, it had developed a nationalistic version of Christianity, um, which saw German identity as a better path towards Christ, as the true path towards Christ. So Christianity was basically co-opted by this German nationalism and prop and Christianity became a form of propaganda for German nationalism. And it always seems a bit extreme to kind of illustrate your point with Nazis. I think there's some law about that. But, but, um, but nevertheless, uh, I think it's a good illustration that, um, that this, this fascistic ideology of the Nazis was built on an idea of community. It was built on an ideal, a utopian ideal of community. Um, the German folk, you know, this this true race of people. This is this idea that that illuminated and 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 motivated um, Nazism and justified their attempts to eradicate all other kinds of people and all other identities. But Bonhoeffer broke with this framework, and he uh, he drove, yeah, he, he drove. Well, he 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 disappeared underground, I guess. Um, joined the uh, Confessing Church, which was an opposition movement to Nazi Christianity. Um, and in 1935, he was asked to direct this. That's him up there on the top. He was asked to direct a, um, a seminary um, for training young ministers who would, who would be the next generation of Christians who would push back against this um, German nationalistic religion and uphold orthodoxy. So in addition to critiquing Nazi Germany and Nazi Christianity, um, Bonhoeffer created a communal form of life and, um, and practiced these classic Christian practices. So uh, he and his students slept in a common room, observed structured mealtimes, took private devotions, meditated on scripture, confessed their sins, practiced silence. Basically, he, he created a little, a little monastery um, and lived the monastic life with these brothers. And his experience of, 
of seeing Christ in the life of this Christian community was he put put it down into this little book. It's it's quite small, but it's actually pretty powerful and pretty. You kind of read it quite slowly, I think. Um, these are the sort of reflections of life together. That's what the book's called, Life Together. And it's a it's a picture of community, and it's a beautiful picture of community. And in the end, um, Bonhoeffer was imprisoned by the Nazis and hanged under the personal orders of Hitler. Only a few days, just before the end of the war, about a couple of weeks before the end of the war, Hitler asked for him to be hanged. Um, and here's what Benjamin Blackwell says about Bonhoeffer, his reflection on the man's life. He says, Bonhoeffer's life and death were a witness to Christ among those under the rule of death. Hitler's life testifies to a mad tyrant's quest to rule. Bonhoeffer testifies to the rule of Christ. Hitler sought a perfect community and tore the human family to pieces. Bonhoeffer sought an obedient community and united the human family in radical service to others. So in this book, In Life Together, Bonhoeffer speaks of the danger of idealized community, idealized, idealizing community and um, the forms of community, these utopian forms of community which he saw around him. Bear with me. This is a German theologian. It's rather dense and rather intense. But um, he writes, innumerable, innumerable times a whole Christian community has broken down because it had sprung from a wish dream. The serious Christian set down for the first time in a Christian community is likely to bring with him or her a very definite idea of what Christian life together should be and to try to realize it. But God's grace speedily shatters such dreams. Even more bluntly, he writes, um, every human wish dream that is injected into the Christian community is a hindrance to genuine community and must be banished if genuine community is to survive. He who loves his dream of community more than the Christian community itself becomes a destroyer of the latter, even though his personal intentions may be ever so honest and earnest and sacrificial. God hates visionary dreaming. It makes the dreamer proud and pretentious. The man who fashions a visionary ideal of community demands that it be realized by God, by others, and by himself. He enters the community of Christians with demand, sets up his own law, and judges the brethren and God himself accordingly. He stands adamant, a living reproach to all others in the circle of brethren. He acts as if he is the creator of the Christian community, as if his dream binds people together. When things do not go his way, he calls the effort a failure. When his ideal picture is destroyed, he sees the community going to pot. So he becomes first an accuser of his brethren, then an accuser of God, and finally the despairing accuser of himself. So, <laughs> like I said, rather sort of heavy going, but you know, uh, you think about the context, right? He's he's living in these life and death situations, and he's seeing what comes of um, these toxic communities, and he's realizing that any of this utopian thinking that creeps into this Christian community is going to eventually destroy it. So he's going hard against it. And it's, you know, you probably thought, oh, talk on community, that'll be nice and fluffy. <laughs> um, but I think, you know, these are important thoughts, you know. Um, 
You know, we're trying to find our way as a church. We're trying to find our way to community. But it's important that we don't import our visions and ideals and utopian dreams about community and about each other because what happens is we start to try to convert each other and make each other think the way we think. And we become the enemies of community. We become destroyers of community. Instead, um, we need to remember that Christian community is not an ideal to be realized, but a gift to be received. It's a reality created by God in Christ by which we um, participate. So let me conclude with an illustration or a story. So um, when I was 19, um, my dad and I were invited to participate in a global missions summit, I think it was, in Bangkok. So I tagged along, and anyway, I wasn't really the main event, <laughs> but, um, but I tagged along with Dad, and um, we went to this global missions event in Bangkok, and there were people from all over the world, really um, Christians from, from Southeast Asia, from communities in South Asia and Africa, as well as North America and Europe, and all, you know, a big kind of melting pot, of sort of United Nations of, of church mission groups. Anyway, um, we were there to kind of represent the vineyard here, um, and at some st- at some point we were invited, Lloyd and I, to come up to the stage and introduce ourselves and tell a little bit about who we were and our story. And the the host of the event, Sukit, this very cheeky Thai man, um, must have seen that I was a little bit uncomfortable and out of my depth or something like that. So he decided that. He would give me a special assignment, which was um, there was a group of, of guys who were um, who were representing some communities where their churches were were being persecuted. Where there was like kind of in, quite intense stuff going on, and so Sukut asked me to go and, and basically minister to these people and pray for them and, and encourage them. <laughs> and, uh, and you know, if you ever feel like you have nothing to offer, <laughs> that was me. Like uh, this, this kind of naive, extremely privileged kid from New Zealand, to come and give an encouraging word to these people who, whose um, families and communities were su- suffering under persecution. What, what encouragement could I draw on? What, what wise words could I offer them of encouragement? How could I? you know, make them feel good. I I had nothing. I, my hands were absolutely empty. Um, but standing with these guys, these young guys, um, it was like this realization that I had nothing at all to offer them. I just didn't have anything. Suddenly, all I had was the fact that we were participants in this thing of this, this thing of the kingdom of God. I'm a participant and you're a participant and we are all participants. There was a sudden realization that all all we had in common, we didn't have anything in common except that we were brothers in Christ. And out of that sense of fellowship, out of that sense of participation, it was it was a, a time to, to celebrate that we were in Christ together, a time to celebrate our our mutual inheritance. Uh, um, and and it was like a miracle, I guess, a miracle of fellowship in the strangest of places, in the strangest of of moments. This miracle of fellowship with people that we had, I had nothing in common with. And so, 
I believe that's essentially what it is for us here. Um, we, we sort of need to take a similar posture. The miracle of this fellowship, the miracle of this community and our value for community here is, is that we come as, as participants in what God's doing, not in, not in seeking for things to align ourselves together, not in trying to build alliances, not in trying to create a utopian community. We come to acknowledge that we are here because of God. So we don't think the same or dress the same or vote the same. We don't have to share the same sense of humor, same life experiences. Yet when we acknowledge each other as members of Christ's body, we discover with the psalmist how good and pleasant it is when brothers and sisters dwell together in unity. For there, where two or three are gathered in God's name, Christ is with us. And that's, that's all I have to say this morning on this value. could talk a lot more about some practical stuff, but I just wanted to offer a, a more of a, a grid for us to think about. Um, there's two responses that I think are appropriate to this idea. Um, one is, is thanksgiving. You know, just thanksgiving would spring up out of us for the, for the gift of community that God's given us in Christ. And the other is um, a resolve to to receive community with open hands like this so that we would receive it um, as a gift given to us by God and to participate.